Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing our series, AD 30, which is basically a series on the chronological life of Christ. Now we're assuming that people who've put together those, uh, you know, sort of looked at the different Gospels and tried to piece it together, we're assuming they're doing it as, as well as we can. Some of the Gospels are arranged thematically, so we're not always exactly sure about where certain things are, but we're trying to do sort of a walk through the life of Christ And today we're going to talk about a story that is probably familiar, as many of these are, and that is walk on water faith. Fred Penny writes, I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. In 1972, our seventh grade French class decided to take a special weekend trip to the French islands just off our southern coast. The entire weekend was going to cost each student $50, a large sum of money, I thought. I really wanted to experience a French culture, and I thought it would do wonders for my grasp of the French language, but I assumed my parents couldn't afford it. So rather than put my parents in the awkward position of saying no, I decided not to ask. Imagine my surprise a couple of years later when my sister arrived home from school and announced that her class was taking a 14-day Mediterranean cruise. This trip was not only going to cost $50, but $1,000. And she blurted out, Mom, can I go? What audacity. Much to my surprise, my mom and dad declared, well, we don't know quite where we'll find the money, but we will find it. Of course you can go on the Mediterranean cruise. And he wouldn't ask for $50 and couldn't go on his field trip. We do that with God. We, we underestimate his generosity. And Jesus actually talks about that many times. The author of Soul Shift writes similarly, One time, my dad wanted to congratulate me on something I'd accomplished in the sixth grade. He took me to Kmart, made a wide, sweeping gesture with his hand toward the whole store from the entrance, and he said, to congratulate you, I'll buy you anything in this whole store tonight. My eyes widened as I thought of the possibilities. At the time, I didn't have a full grasp of how money worked or how much money dad had. So I sort of limited things in my mind. I didn't even look at the huge stereo systems, expensive bikes, or anything that cost more than $100. Instead, I chose a cassette tape case that was less than $50. I was content with just that case. It was more than I could afford myself for sure, so I chose that one. It was nice. Only many years later did I find out from Dad that he had $1,000 cash in his pocket that night. What's more, he brought his checkbook just in case the $1,000 wasn't enough. In my selection, I limited his blessing in my life. We do that with God. We underestimate his generosity. Unfortunately, increasingly in our culture, we're not even thinking about not just his generosity, we're not even thinking about him. God, these days, is not trending in the right directions. Societally, he's increasingly out of our thoughts. Dataclysm, who we are when no one is looking at us, 
says the new science of culturenomics tracks the disappearance of God. Google has digitized 30 million unique books. According to author Christian Rudder, this body of data has created a new field of quantitative cultural studies called culturenomics. Its primary method is to track changes in word use through time. The long reach of the data, which goes all the way back to 1800, allows an unusual look at people and what's important to them going back 220 years. For example, ice cream took off in the 1910s, right when GE introduced the powered home icebox, while the word pasta nosedived in the late 90s when the Adkins diet became popular. But culturenomics also reveals what's deeply important to us. Well, I thought ice cream was. <laughs> oh. The data shows that with each passing year, we're getting more wrapped up in the present. And what, it what does it show for the word God? That word has been in steady decline for decades and is now used only about a third as much in writing as it was in the early 1800s. So we are underestimating what God's going to do for us. We don't ask for much, just like those kids didn't ask their parents for us, and we need to change that. And at the same time, we're underestimating what God can do for us. We need to change that. We're also societally marginalizing even talking about him or writing about him. God is not trending in the right direction. The struggle for a maturing, believing faith is not new. We may be headed in the wrong direction, but it's also not new. Matthew 14, I would encourage you to turn there if you've got a Bible. If you don't, there should be one near you in the pew and about two-thirds of the way through, it starts over with page one. You're hitting the New Testament. This is on page 12 in your New Testament. So page 12 in your New Testament. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, now this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, to the disciples, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, and that could easily be translated, Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So he, he made some progress. We often think he got out of the boat, he started sinking. He was walking on water. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, now this is a pretty big deal because, again, people expected Jesus to be the Messiah. They did not expect him to be divine. That's much more of a Christian thought looking back into the Old Testament. They said, you are certainly God's son. So this is starting to become apparent to them. He's divine. 
When they had crossed over, they came to the land at uh, Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. They implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. So again, we're following the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. And in order to put this story into context, I just want to let you know a couple of things that have just happened that I'm not preaching about. John the Baptist was executed. Didn't think there'd be a lot of good applications for us there, so we're not going to preach on that one. But John the Baptist was just executed by Herod. And then after that, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what's interesting in the feeding of the 5,000, there's not really, I mean, there's some application as to the power of Jesus, but there's not really any teaching in the feeding of the 5,000. It's more just this great public miracle, which is incredibly popular in the Gospels. Very rarely do you have a Gospel having all four of anything, the four Gospels repeating any miracle or any situation. But in this case, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include the feeding of the 5,000. Then right after that, only Luke does not have this next story. Matthew, Mark, and John all add what clearly happened later that night. They tie it together. Sometimes it's hard to find chronology. In this situation, it's very clear. The 5,000 are fed, and then we move right from that into the disciples going out on the lake and Jesus coming to them later on where he walks on water. Like many other stories in the Gospels, the authors give us different details in the different accounts of the story. Now, this used to worry people. You know, liberal scholars would look at stories of the resurrection or stories like this, and they'd say, you know what? The accounts seem inconsistent, and that shouldn't actually bother you. They're not contrary. It's just that it's a matter of emphasis. Different accounts put in different details. It, it reminds me of you know, situations in my own life. If I go on a fishing trip with one of my friends and I'm telling the story instead of him, I might include the fact that I caught the most fish. I'm not going to include the fact that Mark Sawatsky caught the biggest fish. I'm going to leave that out. Nor is it true that I caught the most fish, necessarily. I remember right before I was engaged to my wonderful wife, about three weeks before we were engaged, we broke up. Yes, yes. And what happened there is I dumped her and she came crawling back a week later. That's what happened. But if you get her rendition of that story, it will be slightly different. She would say, I let him go. And then, you know, God brought us back together. Again, same story, different details. I'll let you guys pick who you want to believe. I'm probably not going to fare very well in that. And in fact, I suspect the rest of my day just opened up. So if you wanted to get together with me for lunch, I am available. There are two very unique things that, that are like this, these details that are only mentioned in one place versus another. Um, only mentioned in one of the three accounts, in fact. Only Matthew mentions Peter getting out of the boat and trying to walk on water and actually doing it successfully for a little bit. And only Mark ties the feeding of the 5,000 to this situation, actually ties them together. And I'll, I'll tell you what that is later. So we read Matthew because of the inclusion of Peter. So I'm going to talk about Peter a bit. But first, Jesus creates. Jesus uses a series of faith-building events in the lives of his followers. He did it back then for his disciples. He does it for us. 
The purpose of the Gospels is to create faith in Jesus Christ in each of us. And sometimes the Gospel writers just come out and say, I'm writing this to you so that you will believe in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. They say it that plainly. That's their purpose. They include stories from history, by that I mean real stories, to do just that, from the virgin birth to the resurrection. Those stories are there to help us to believe those stories and understand this is who Jesus was. He's God's son. He's the Jewish Messiah. The virgin birth to the resurrection, everything in between is to create faith in the person of Jesus. Now what's interesting is these stories didn't happen to us. They happened to another group of people. They happened for us, but not to us. So in a sense, we gain faith from reading these stories about what Jesus did with his disciples, and also we gain faith when Jesus does the same things today in our lives in many ways. But when we're looking at this, we get to observe how God, how Jesus did this in the lives of his disciples. So Jesus has just finished up the very famous feeding of the 5,000, which if you look at the text, you'll see that one of the texts says that it did not include women and children. So I would call this the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. This was huge. This is like a medium-sized city is on the side of a mountain getting fed through this miracle. And, And what you notice if you read the Gospels, particularly John, this feeding of the 15 or 20,000 breaks up in a hurry. It's like Jesus feeds the 20,000, he multiplies you know, the groceries that this little kid had in his lunch pail, multiplies that, all of these people are fed, and then immediately after they gather up the leftovers, there's 12 baskets full, Jesus gets out of there, he sends his disciples out of there. It's like, well, why wouldn't you sort of bask in the glory of what just happened? Why wouldn't you use this as another teaching moment? And here's the reason, John, 15, John 6, 15 actually identifies it. He says, right after that miracle took place, the people who experienced that were ready to make him king by force. They were like, Dude, if you can do this, I mean, it's time to use this on a, it's time to go viral with this, use this on a macro level, and let's, you know, kick Rome out of here and get back our independence because we've got a miracle worker among us. All right, so Jesus doesn't want that to take place. The crowds would have made him king. They had seen enough for that. Jesus wants to avoid a political kingdom and the political motivations of his followers to just make him king. He wants to have more of a spiritual impact. So what does he do? He breaks up the band. He breaks up the band. He sends the disciples onto the sea. He gets rid of them immediately. He goes up the mountain to pray. He doesn't want anything else to happen that day with this crowd. But look what happens with the disciples. After this miracle, the one that, where Jesus walks on water and then calms the waves, so I'm kind of getting to the end of the story first. After this miracle, the disciples also go to a new level. So in verse 14, 33, at the end of the story, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. This is sort of new revelation. They worship him. They attribute deity to him. This is almost like the famous, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
that you're gonna see in just another chapter and a half from Peter. You know, who do you say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist resurrected. And he says, well, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There was a greater understanding of that a chapter and a half later, but they're getting there already. And this is, I believe, the first time that the disciples as a group are really recognizing, you're, you're not just a king, you're God. You see, there are degrees of faith being developed here in these stories. It's this continuing new understanding of everything that Jesus is capable of and, and who he is and his very identity. In the crowds, they're now getting to the point where you, you're the Messiah. You should be our king. And, and with the disciples behind the scenes, and they've seen a little bit more, you're God. See, God does this, he, he did this, and, and he does this. He, he sets this stuff up, and he's done it with his disciples here where he sent them onto the sea, and it was not a coincidence. Jesus knew what was gonna happen. He's setting them up so he can continue to display more of himself so they have a greater understanding of who he is, and as a result, greater faith in who he is and what he can do in this world when he leaves. It was a setup for a faith-building experience. The water walk was not an afterthought. He could have stayed on shore and calmed the storm, but he didn't because he uses a series of faith-building events in the lives of his followers, and he does the same thing to us, sometimes uncomfortably, kind of lets us dangle out there for a while, get in a difficult situation so he can come through and, and prove himself, and we don't always love the process. Second, faith grows when we learn to believe in Jesus more than a rational, natural outcome. So what I'm trying to do here is really identify what happened in Peter's heart when he's successfully walking on water and then isn't. So there's a little debate about where the disciples were headed that night because I believe in, in one or more of the accounts the word Bethsaida is used. The problem is Bethsaida actually could be multiple different places. That town name was used of multiple places. But either way, Jesus has sent them onto the sea and they're going to the other side, whatever that means. They could be going north, they could be going east, they could, you know, there's a lot of different places they could be going to, but they're supposed to get out on the sea. Again, Jesus is breaking up the band so that nobody can make him king. So he gets them out on the ocean where they're going to be isolated. And once they're there, storm arose. There's a little deja vu all over again. He's just calmed one. Now there's another one. So again, what's going on here is the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea, I mean, sorry. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 680 feet, I believe, below sea level. So it's very low. And there's cliffs on the outside of it that I believe rise up to about 1,400 feet around much of the sea. So there's some pretty big cliffs or mountains that are around it. And then you've got this deep basin, deeper than sea level. And so what happens at night is cold air moves in. It, it hits the edge of those cliffs and it drops and there's a great sort of tumult between these warm air currents and cold air. So there's massive turbulence, big storms without rain, just a lot of wind. It's like when a Chinook is coming over the mountains here. If we had a big lake here the size of the Sea of Galilee and a Chinook comes in, we would have this kind of situation. So that's what's going on here. It's a Chinook just before it was popular. 
So Jesus is in no hurry to show up. In fact, I would argue Jesus sort of delayed his showing up. He was praying. He's, and this happens, I believe, a couple of times in the Gospels where people, people are trying to rush to sort of promote him. He tends to go back and, and pray. And sort of maybe it's like, God, help me not to you know, take advantage of this earthly situation. I know what I'm here for. In those moments, he would pray. And in my opinion, he did everything he could to let his disciples sweat. And he does that. Remember the, the synagogue ruler who had a daughter who was dying and Jesus could have gone right to her house and he starts and then he runs into this woman who's got this um, feminine issue and needs healing and he sticks around till the daughter's dead. But then he raises her from the dead. Remember Lazarus, one of his best friends? People come to Lazarus, hey, you need to get over here. The, the guy, your, this, your best friend is dying and Jesus waits a couple of days till he dies. Nice, Jesus. But then he raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus does this, and he does this to you. And he does it to me. And I don't like it either. So he's, he's gonna let his disciples sweat. He finished his to-do list, he prayed, he grabbed a slushie from the 7-Eleven, he ate a kosher hot dog. He is doing everything he can to let these guys be out on the winds and the waves until it gets kind of scary. And finally, in the fourth watch of the night, which in Roman time is three to six in the morning, so he's let them be out there for a while, fighting the sea. It's three in the morning, four in the morning. He decides to walk on the water and go check them out. No boat. Gravity-defying, physics-defying water walk. And Jesus has allowed hours of this battle between his disciples and the storm to take place. So after three o'clock, he's out on the sea. He's kind of passing them. They see him. They assume he's some sort of a spirit or ghost. He identifies himself. He reassures them. And then it gets good. Peter shows up as Peter. I love Peter. The Bible is so honest about Peter. I, I kind of am Peter. Just impulsive, act first, think later, brave, courageous. I love this guy. He'd put it all out there, knowing that it was going to be recorded for all of us to ridicule him 2,000 years later. He just, he just was himself. So what happens with Peter? Peter says to Jesus, who's walking by on the water, Lord, if it is you, and that could just as easily be translated, since it is you, since it's you, Lord, and I know what you're capable of, command me to come to you on the water. Since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus says, okay, Peter, come on the water. So Peter did. And he walked on water. Now again, the other passages don't include this, but, but he didn't sink right away. He walked on water. He didn't immediately sink. He was doing okay. He was making history. And then in verse 30, but seeing the wind, which you really can't do, 
It's just the use of language that we do. Seeing the wind, we see the results of the wind. He became frightened and he began to sink. And he cried out and he said, Lord, save me. Again, you don't see wind, but you see the chaos it creates. They were in a storm. You get in a storm, the Sea of Galilee is what, like three and a half, four miles wide and a lot longer in, in, uh, in length. I think it's about four miles by seven or eight miles at least. They're in a storm. When you get on that kind of water, I've been on big water in little boats, and they were in a medium-sized boat on really big water. Uh, you have waves, and they might be, you know, you might have three or four feet waves, but then you have swells that occur every so often. So you have waves that might be three or four or five feet high. And then you have swells that could be six or eight feet deep, maybe 10 feet deep, and it gets scary because then if a wave and a swell hits you at the same time and you're sideways, you're done. It's over. So Peter is there. Jesus says, okay, come on, out on the water. Waves and swells are surrounding him. They represented a real threat. They were the rational reality, if I can call that it that. They should be, waves would normally be, swells would normally be overwhelming him if he's out there walking. He should be sinking. That's the natural expectation. That's the rational expectation. He should be unable to get above the swells. That would be the natural expectation, the rational expectation. He should drown. That would be the natural outcome. That would be the rational expectation. Jesus is not the rational Natural expectation. Drowning is. Walking on water doesn't make sense. Miracles don't make to us rational, natural sense. Jesus of Nazareth doesn't fit into our expectations of reality. Our reality day to day. That's our struggle with faith. On one hand, we, we live in a world where you know, the laws of nature work. The scientific method is repeatable. The laws of nature govern everything. Sickness and disease lead to death. Miracles operate outside of our system of norms. They're not rational to us. They're not natural to us. God seems to be outside of our system. He created a system, and yet the way he operates when we bump into him seems to be somebody who operates outside of our system of norms. That's why miracles stick out. They, they operate outside of our system. There are no water walkers among us, except for ice fishermen. Faith in Jesus Faith in God only grows as we grow in our belief that he is going to invade that reality, that he is going to overcome that natural, rational reality, that he's going to penetrate that reality, that he's going to supersede that reality. That's when our faith grows. Those are the stories we have in the Gospels. Times where Jesus invaded our normalcy and did things that we couldn't explain. He had to be God to do them. So Peter's stuck between these two concepts. Jesus, miracle worker's here. He's actually, you know, he starts out maybe 10, 15 yards away, and now he's walked a little bit. Jesus, the miracle worker, is here, the one who operates outside of our rationalism, our naturalism. And yet, I see the wind and the waves. So I got Jesus, he can operate outside of the norms. I've got wind and waves, which mean I should be dying which reality is going to win in Peter's heart? 
as he's standing on water. Swells. And he took his eyes away from Jesus and he saw the real situation he was in and the way that would normally end. And his faith wavered. That's our struggle. That's the same struggle for you and me. Something bad happens in our lives and, and we look at the natural outcome. You know, I've got a certain kind of sickness or disease that's gonna lead to you know, X, Y, Z outcome and I'm in big trouble. Yet I know Jesus, the miracle worker. I know God who has done incredible things. I see it in the scriptures. I'm aware of some of it in the world around me. And, and I'm going to look at Jesus and trust in what he's going to do or I'm going to look at the normal expectation, my natural, rational reality. And even as Christians, that's where we tend to camp. And we sink. Our faith dies in that moment. Third, faith dies when we ignore the cumulative evidence of Jesus' activity in our lives. And this is where Mark does something quite remarkable. So Jesus has just performed the most public and inclusive miracle of his career just a few hours before this, before the slushy and the hot dog and father prayer and so on. So about eight, nine hours ago, Jesus has performed his most public miracle. 15 to 20,000 people experienced it to the point where the Jews wanted to make him king. And not long before this, he performed four miracles that covered the four realms of human experience that were most common to them. There are many more realms he controlled, but you know, he had calmed the winds and the waves in a 24-hour period before. He calmed the winds and waves. He, he had cast demons out of those two men by the, uh, on the Gentile side of the shore. He had healed this woman who had the issue of bleeding. He had raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and in this 24 to 48-hour period, the, the gospel writers are showing us the power Jesus had over the forces of nature, the forces of evil, the forces of sickness, the forces of death. He can do anything. And so the point is, nothing should really be a surprise to the disciples at this point. I mean, wouldn't you agree? They've just seen all this and they just experienced the feeding of the 20,000. You would think their faith would be growing at this point. Notice what Mark says about that in Mark 6, 51 and 52. He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now this, is, this one does not include the story of Peter. That's only Matthew. Same story but without Peter. Got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Like, why are you astounded after what you've just seen eight hours ago? For they did not understand about the loaves. Isn't that interesting? They didn't understand about the loaves and the fishes. Their hearts were kind of hardened. Mark is the only one who ties that giant public miracle to their lack of faith here. It's like, what he's saying is, you know what? They keep experiencing these things over and over and over, and they don't get it. In Matthew, Jesus is wondering why you know, Peter can't float a little bit better. You know, what's your problem? Why are you doubting? In Mark, the disciples are surprised at a calm sea. That's what Mark highlights. The sea is calm. The disciples are astonished. Jesus is astonished that Peter can't keep walking on water. It's like, 
where's your faith? Have you not been paying attention to who you are with and what I am capable of? And Mark gives the reason. Basically, it just wasn't sinking in. The crowds wanted to anoint him eight hours before. The disciples have seen all these miracles, and they're like, meh, meh, whatever. How about you? How about you? How much do you and I actually see God's activity at maybe certain periods of our lives or we're aware of something that happens like, wow, that could only be explained by God entering into our reality and overcoming what would be a rational, natural outcome, you know, healing somebody who's dying. And I've seen multiple situations like that where there's no explanation other than God healed somebody. And yet, when we get in a difficult situation, those things are just out of our minds and we completely operate with our rationalism, our naturalism. We don't include the stories of God. And so our faith dies and we sink. Just a few apps as we close. First, what has God done that you seem to have forgotten? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure who that is. Some say Paul, we're not sure. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's what he's trying to develop in us. Remember the Old Testament warning in the law in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the early chapters? You know, God's kind of concerned that once you enter the promised land, you're going to forget who got you there. Remember that warning? to keep telling their kids about the stories of old. You're going to forget about the time that I parted the Red Sea and two million of you walked across on dry land and some of your kids were poking their arms into the water trying to grab the fish. You're going to forget that. That's a little paraphrase. You're going to forget about that miracle. You're going to forget about the ten plagues on Egypt where I humbled a major world power to free you. You're going to forget about that. You're going to forget about the battles that were won, and you're gonna think that you got here by yourselves. That's God's warning to Israel in Deuteronomy. You're gonna forget what I did. Because God wants his past activity in our lives and in history to fuel our faith in him, to fuel our faith in his character so that we have faith in his future activity in our lives and in our world. There is meant to be a connection between what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And so many times in our lives we know, oh, he did that, that's really great, and that's why I believe in him but we don't take it into the present and the future. That's why I believe he really wants to be active in my life and in my world and to change outcomes. What have you forgotten? Do we look at the waves too much and forget that the same God exists that existed back then and we sell him short and we sink? Second, what do you want from God that he wants? And is it enough? Now what I mean by that is what do you want from God? What are you praying for that he wants? Because there is this statement in the scriptures about praying for things that are in God's will. But prayer in the scriptures is, I must admit, it's kind of confusing. It really is. Okay, so I'm going to admit that. You can go home and tell your Christian friend, my pastor says prayer is confusing. I'm not sure I want to go to church there. (laughs) No, it's confusing. It's confusing. Anyone who tells you otherwise either hasn't read their Bible or... It's confusing because... 
we know faith is involved. We know God's will is involved. But I want to say this to you. And, and again, I believe the whole Bible. I believe it's God's word. But here's the problem. Most of the passages where Jesus talks about prayer and faith, he doesn't put this qualifier in there about praying in God's will. That appears more, I think, in 1 John. It, it's elsewhere. Maybe other places. But most of the statements for Jesus are these wide open, you know, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe it, and it's going to happen. And, you know, it's a little bit like the name it and claim it Christians, and I'm not a part of that group, but, you know, they've got a point. There are these open-ended statements from Jesus about, about great things happening through prayer. So Jesus seems to indicate that we should be moving the heart of a loving father towards changing our reality and changing the world, and the prayer is a vital part of that. But then many of us as Christians, once we saw that qualifier, we gotta pray for things in God's will, and we, and we go to prayer, it's like, okay, God, do what you want. I hope it's good. And we lose all the sense of boldness all the sense of those open-ended promises that Jesus talked about, all the sense that God really wants to do anything significant in our lives and in our world. And I don't know where the balance is, but I'm pretty convinced I'm not there. And I'm pretty convinced North American evangelical Christianity is not there. Pretty convinced. That we have sort of adopted the view that prayer really doesn't move God's heart much at all and we're just consigned to whatever he's going to really do anyway and it's nice to pray, we feel close to God, but we're not really changing anything. That's not the way Jesus described prayer. I don't know where the balance is, but I'm pretty convinced that I'm not there. In his book, Beyond Jabez, Bruce Wilkerson shares the story of an old African woman who demonstrated faith in God's power to provide. She lived in a tiny hut, but she had taken in 56 orphans. Small group of Wilkerson's Dream for Africa volunteers arrived in this grandmother's native Swaziland to plant gardens. And on the final day of their visit, they came to her home surrounded by the many children in her care, 56. I don't know how she kept track of that. A number of little gardens had been dug up all around the hut. No plants were growing in any of them. The volunteers learned that earlier on the same day, the woman had told the children to dig lots of gardens. When the children asked her why, since they had no seeds, she said, last night I asked God to send someone to plant gardens for us. We gotta be ready for them when they come. Wilkinson's volunteers had come with hundreds of ready-to-plant seedlings, and God sent them to the very place where one of his servants had begged for his intervening hand to feed 56 orphans. The faithful grandmother and her children were ready when the answer came. Right, that's a true story. Bruce Wilkerson doesn't lie about stuff like that, okay? He's a trustworthy dude. You explain that. That's God. Don't we all want more of that? Finally, what's your wind and wave scenario that competes with your faith in Jesus? And what I mean by that is, what are you looking at, your at in your life that you're just expecting the natural, rational outcome in some difficult situation to the point where you just don't look at Jesus anymore? And I want to tell you, God still does stuff. His heart is still moved when people pray. And without hopefully committing heresy here, I don't want to pray for God's will. I want to beg God to change it, to shape it or else I don't understand prayer. David Fitch shares how the prayers of a church vanquished 
Satan's grip on a neighborhood. In 2010, a group of eight people from two churches felt called to the Detroit Boulevard neighborhood of Sacramento. If you've ever been down in the state, Sacramento is a pretty rough city, much of it is. It was known as one of the most notorious crime-ridden neighborhoods in all of Sacramento, and each house in that neighborhood was a place of danger. Nonetheless, this group of eight decided to walk through the neighborhood praying over every home and praying for the presence of Christ to reign over violence, addiction, and oppression. They began walking through the neighborhood, praying over each home, rebuking the strongholds of addiction and violence. And One of the eight, a former police officer and a gang detective, reported that each time we prayed over the houses, we felt the weight of oppression become lighter. And a woman from one of the houses was confronting him, and when she discovered they were praying for the community, she asked for healing, and she was miraculously healed. The group soon physically moved into the neighborhood and started what they called Detroit Life Church. A couple years later, a local newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, reported that there were no homicides, no robberies, no sex crimes, and only one assault in Detroit Boulevard between 2013 and 2014. Detroit Boulevard had been transformed by a small group of people who began their ministry in the neighborhood by praying around houses, streets, buildings, parks, for the power of Satan to be vanquished. Kingdom prayer in body is what it means to be faithfully present to his presence in this world. I suppose we could put it this way, if you wanna just pray for God's will, whatever that is, maybe we should assume God's will is a little better than a lot of our prayers ask for. What's your wind and wave scenario that competes with your faith in Jesus? How much do you look at the future and assume almost God's lack of involvement when we look at the world around us? God, we thank you for your word. And I recognize and confess that I am so much like Peter. Not when he got out of the boat, but when he looked at the winds and the waves. And he sank. And I I think we all are. I think it's why this story is here, is to to show us how, how hard it is, even when there's such evidence for who you are and what you're willing to do in our lives and in our world, how easy it is for us to set it aside and look at our, the experiences and the challenges in our lives through the eyes of fear and, and an assumption that you're really not gonna get involved. We just look at the winds and the waves and we sink. Help us to be people of faith, not asking for things that don't matter to you, but things that would be in your will for our neighbors, for our friends, for our children, for our grandchildren, that they would come to know you, that you would take care of us, that you would be involved in our lives, that we would see your presence and your influence among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.